Father, we are before you in this Christmas Eve and this Christmas Day of 2023. We are before you and seeking to worship you and to worship your Son and with circumstances that have happened and come up this week, including this event right now with Lloyd, Lord, we we can feel like we're left wondering what 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 Lord, uh, what what would you have us learn? What would you have us hear? Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ and that in the darkness of this world, no matter how dark it is, your light has definitively broke in. You have, you have shown forth the glory of your name through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we can rejoice in that, Lord. We can look to you no matter how bad things appear, no matter how difficult things seem to be, we can look to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and know that light has dawned upon us and light is never overcome by darkness. We thank you, Lord Jesus, you have secured the victory. You have conquered for the sake of your people. And I pray, Father, that this morning you would help us set our minds upon the hope of Christmas the hope that has arrived on that first Christmas day, that hope that we remember and celebrate here together. God, give us grace to do that with one heart and one mind. Let us lay aside any petty and insignificant grievances that we may have against one another. Forgive us, Lord, for the ways that we have talked about each other, the ways we have not honored one another, as those who are called by your name. Forgive us for not believing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things in relation to each other in this body. Lord Jesus, you stepped into this world as the Lord of peace, and it's in you that we have peace. I pray that that peace would be manifest in the life of this body, that you would work in us and among us to the end that Jesus Christ would be more exalted. Lord, we smell the breath of our enemy all around us. We smell his attacks. We're not ignorant of his schemes, which are to divide and conquer. And so I pray, Lord, that he would have no victories here, that you would lay him open, as you already have, Lord. You have defeated him through the cross. You have laid him open with his own instruments of death from thigh to neck. You have sliced him open, and you have laid him down on the ground in his own defeat. Or the devil has no victory here. And I pray that we would stand in that reality and that we would fight and stand strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might in these dark times. Light has shone upon us, Lord. Help us shine that light in the world as those who are called to walk in that light. Lord, we've sinned against you in this past week in ways that we can't even count ways we're not even aware of. We pray that you'd be merciful to us and forgive us, Lord. Give us grace to confess those sins and also to believe the promise that if we confess those sins, you are faithful and you are just through our Lord Jesus Christ to forgive us of those sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
Lord, give us that grace and that hope and confidence this morning as we gather together as your people. We do pray for Vicki and Sarah and the rest of Greg's family as they mourn his passing, as they experience the loss of so great a man. Such, such a great gift that you've given to us in Greg Patton, Lord. We are privileged to have known him. And we do mourn our loss of him, but we know we rejoice in the fact that our loss is his gain. His trial is over. He has entered into your rest that you have purchased for him. Lord, we thank you also for Lauren's mom. Years of faithfulness, of joyful service to you, capped off with a life that endured to the end, holding fast her hope in you. Lord, we pray for Mr. Huben as he goes on without his dear bride. Would you comfort his soul? Give him grace to walk forward in faith and trusting in you. Lord, we, uh, many of us have lost loved ones in the recent past, and we pray that Christmas, the hope of Christmas, would be a time of healing and encouragement for each of us. We do thank you for Josie and Sellers. Lord, what a sweet, gracious gift that you have given to the Sellers family. We pray for her, Lord. We pray that you would bless her immensely, that you would cause your face to shine upon her abundantly at an early age, that she would be drawn to you with cords of kindness, and that you would save her through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for her parents that they would raise her in the fear and admonition of the Lord and set an example of what it means to live for you and to follow your ways. Lord, as we come to your word, we ask you to bless us and be merciful to us for the sake of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. All kinds of emotions this morning. Jay for Jesus, shepherd's crook, Jesus is our faithful shepherd, always take care of us. All right, would you uh, hear the reading of the word of the Lord for this morning from Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and then verses 17 through chapter 2, verse 12. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse 17, therefore all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the time of Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they had come together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. 
For that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph arose from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took her as his wife. But he kept her a virgin until after she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will be shepherd over my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time of the stars appearing. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the child. And when you have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. And having heard the king, they went their way, and lo, the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they came into the house and saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. In opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream by God not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord and one of the detailed accounts of the Christmas story that we have in the New Testament. May he add his blessing to it and help us rejoice in it this Christmas day, Christmas Eve, I guess. Amen. So I really struggled to know what to title this sermon. Um, initially, I was going to uh, write a sermon about an under-celebrated Christmas. Uh, that is what we find in Matthew chapter 2, an under-celebrated Christmas, uh, where even the scribes and the Pharisees did not go with the Magi to uh, see if this child born truly has or was the Messiah. Uh, then I thought, no, it's... Uh, Let's name it the hope of Christmas. And I started writing the sermon, and it turned into more about the arrival of Christmas. And I was like, okay, we need to title it Arrival of Christmas. Uh, now my fear, as I was sharing with Grant yesterday, is that the more appropriate title would be Christmas Ramblings, because that's pretty much what has been produced in, uh, in my uh, sermon notes. Um, it's been a lot that's been going on this past week, and... Uh, in, in God's grace and his timing, what I have is what I have, and <laughs> a 
If you suffer through it, then be gracious with me. If you're blessed by it, then give glory to God because he's being kind to you in spite of me. You know, one of the things that I, have, uh, I constantly have to do is I have to remind myself to be joyful in the Lord. I don't know if you struggle with that. There are some Christians who are so uh, taken up with joy in the Lord that they really never have to remind themselves to do it. <laughs> but in the New Testament, we have uh, the command to be joyful in the Lord at all times. Even in Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Emphasized there, right? This is something that we are expected not only to experience in our lives, but we're expected to pursue this with our lives, this rejoicing in the Lord always and in all circumstances. Um, you know, it's, an, it's important to remember that because uh, we live in a world where there is so much disappointment to be had. There's so many circumstances and so many uh, relational struggles that we go through in this life, it's very difficult for us to be joyful always, to rejoice in the Lord always. Um, I think if we're not careful, we can let our experiences of trouble and disappointment and trial in this world dictate our attitudes rather than determining what our attitudes will be based upon the truth of God's word. This is the difference between being subject to your emotions and taking your emotions captive for the glory of Christ. And that is what we are called to do. So as Christians, we can be inundated by trouble, the trouble of life in this world, and forget that we are called to set our minds upon the truth of Christ's promise. John 16, that though in this world we will have tribulation, Jesus says, take heart, for I have overcome the world. Right, so now he doesn't say, take heart, because you won't have tribulation anymore. Take heart because the trials are over in this world. That's not what he says. He says, in this world, so long as you are living life in this world, you will have tribulation. You will have persecution. You will have suffering. You will have difficulty. You will be, uh, your life will be marked by sadness and pain and turmoil. But in the midst of that, Jesus says, take heart because I've overcome the world. Most of the time, people take heart when there is no trouble being experienced. But Jesus says, take heart, because no matter what happens, Jesus Christ has the last word, not the tribulation that we face. And everyone who turns from a lifestyle of sin and turns to a lifestyle of sincere faith in Jesus the Messiah will experience the fullness of his victory that he has achieved for his people. It was for this that Christ came. It was for this that Christ lived. It was for this that Christ died. It was for this that He rose again. It was for this that He ascended into glory and is now seated at the right hand of His Father. And it is to this end that He is returning. That He might bring His people into the fullness of the glorious victory that He has accomplished on their behalf. That's something to be joyful in. And it's something we should remind ourselves of often. Well, I find that I have to preach these truths to myself every day. 
throughout the year, but I find it especially so to be the case during the Christmas season. I don't know about you, but Christmas is very depressing for me. Amen? Okay, I can be alone in that. That's fine. But Christmas is very depressing for me. It used to be, it used to be joyful, right? It's like uh, ignorance is bliss. When, when it was simple, when Christmas was simple and I was more ignorant of the world and the way things are, and I could just really be self-centered and focus on my own delight in Christmas, Christmas was very joyful to me. I think as the years have gone on, though, I've found myself struggling more and more against uh, a, a cynical attitude and spirit around Christmas time. It's just so grieving because of what Christmas has become. Nowadays, Christmas is about the, the presents, and Christmas is about uh, Black Friday and Cyber Monday that has extended into like weeks on end. It's like, will you guys ever stop? <laughs> will you ever stop taking advantage of uh, people's heartstrings just for the sake of more money? We know the answer to that is no, not in this life. But, uh... but Christmas has become about trees and lights and an old fat man in a red suit that we call Santa Claus. Now, I'm sorry, kids, but Santa Claus is not real. And he is a lie. He is a distraction and a deviation from the truth of Christmas, which is all about Jesus Christ. Woe to the man who comes to my house asking my kids about Santa Claus. Uh, because, because my kids will set him straight. In fact, that's happened before. They've said, kids, are you uh, seeing people out in the store? Are you, are you kids excited for Santa to come? And my kids have looked right back at them and said, we don't believe in Santa. We worship Jesus. It's like, amen. That's exactly what we should say. You might think that's a little radical, but I think we live in a time where radical stances need to happen. Um, it's amazing to me, and, and maybe it's amazing to you, that people who don't give a rip about Jesus any other time through the rest of the year, all of a sudden, around Christmas time, want to celebrate this holiday that is called Christmas. The world wants Christmas. They just don't want Jesus to be a part of it. We want the presents. We just want to define what those presents are. We want the joyful experiences. We just want to define what those joyful experiences are. We don't want the presents, the gifts that God has given us on Christmas Day. We want our own things. We want to define it according to our own terms. And I guess the more that I'm exposed to that, uh, the more depressing Christmas can seem to be to me. And you know what makes it worse? What makes it worse is much of what is called Christianity today, what is, pose, what is posing as Christianity today. Um, not only getting caught up in all the same things that the world is concerned about at Christmas time, but then when they actually do speak about Christmas, they speak about it in such empty, meaningless, dull-hearted, shallow, trite ways that you're left wondering, is anyone ever going to even be attracted to the true meaning of Christmas? Right? I mean, these songs... Um, Happy birthday, Jesus. Really? Is that the substance of the glory of Christmas that we have to offer and declare to the world? It's Jesus' birthday. Everybody engage in sentimentality. Light the candles. Yay, Jesus! Our sweet baby boy Jesus in the manger. 
right? You know what song I'm talking about. Every time I hear that, I'm sorry, I know some of you do like this song, but every time I hear that song, Mary, did you know that your baby boy one day walk on water? Every time I hear that song, I have a visual in my mind of a, a, a large southern gentleman singing, Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day... That's exactly what it sounded like. <laughs> or away in a manger, right? Remember, Jesus, he's, there's no crying he's making in that manger. He's the perfect baby. That was written by a distressed mother, I think. Those kinds of things, they just grate on my soul. And I would, I would much rather people not celebrate Christmas, not claim to worship Jesus if that's what their worship is all about. Um, now, now you understand why this is Christmas ramblings. Um, I, I know what you're thinking. I know you're thinking, wow, this guy's a ray of Christmas sunshine here. And... Uh, Somebody forgot to pass him the cup of cheer this year. I do, I do feel like that old crotchety man, right? That old crotchety man yelling at all the kids walking by, get off my lawn. I, I do feel at Christmas time, I feel like an old crotchety Christian yelling at everybody, get off my Christmas. Like, stop. Just let it go. You don't worship Jesus, so stop trying to celebrate this thing that you call Christmas. Or just turn. And celebrate the real reason and the real hope of Christmas Day. I can, I can be very bothered in my soul and, and so bothered that I can lose sight of what this day is really all about and what it's focusing on. And so rather than continuing on with this old crotchety Christian attitude, uh, yelling my frustrations at everybody, I, I thought it would be more helpful to focus this morning on some Christmas reminders. What... What are we to be thinking about on Christmas? What are some glorious truths that we can set our minds and hearts upon this Christmas season that will guard us and protect us from becoming cynical and uh, dejected and downcast and depressed and downtrodden in our age? That's not what we're called to be. So what are some of those truths? Well, let me start just by making an acknowledgement there. There's nothing special about the day, December 25th, in itself. I hope, hope you know that. Um, Christ probably was not born on this day, though there is a strong case that can be made to say that he was, but at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. Uh, the fact is, he was born. But this is the day, December 25th, is a day that Christians have set apart since the 3rd and 4th centuries to uh, focus in a special way on the birth of our Savior. And uh, from heaven's perspective, whatever day that was on the calendar, that was one of the most anticipated days of human history. It wasn't always anticipated by humanity, but from heaven's perspective, it was one of the most anticipated days of human history, the day when God the Father sent forth the Christ, His beloved Son, to be the Savior of His people. You know, this is a day, it's a time, it's a season that is not only worth remembering, but it's a season that's worth celebrating. And uh, that's, that's why I believe the Apostle Matthew focuses on the uh, 
day, or at least the season of Christmas, the coming of the Christ. That's why he focuses on that for the first two chapters of his gospel account. Because it's worthy of being remembered and it's worthy of being celebrated. So Christmas reminds us a couple of the things that Christmas reminds us of as we see in Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2. The first thing I'd point out is that Christmas reminds us that God is the God of promise. And He is the God who is faithful to every promise that He makes. We see that in Matthew 1 where Matthew is focusing our attention on the promise of Christmas. So that's what's being emphasized right from Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, be honest, in your Bible reading, those of you who read the Scriptures regularly at home, when you read the book of Matthew and you start off that reading, most of you do exactly what I did this morning when you read Matthew chapter 1. You read Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, you skip down to Matthew chapter 1, verse 17, and then you keep reading. Don't lie. I know that you do that because I've done that. We're all the same, right? Same problem, same issues, same Savior, praise the Lord. But I would challenge you, I, don't, I didn't do this in the sermon, I would challenge you to walk through that genealogy that Matthew has listed out there. Uh, that go research the names and the people who are referenced in that genealogy and just study their lives and see the glory of what God has been doing from the beginning of human history. You know, the, the, the emphasis in Matthew chapter 1 is, is not just on this list of names that belong in the lineage of the human uh, man that we call Jesus. That's not, that's not the main point. The main point there is to show God's faithfulness from generation to generation as He moved and worked to keep His promise to His people. This was the first promise that God ever gave to the human race. And those of you who are members of this church or you come regularly, you have this verse memorized, or at least you should have this verse memorized by now. It's the first promise of salvation in the entire Bible. What is it? Corbin? Just say it. Yeah, see, even threw in that, even threw in the, uh, was that the Latin that you said there? Uh, yeah. Proto-Evangelium. Genesis 3.15. Right? Immediately after the fall of mankind into sin, immediately after this relationship with our God and Creator had been disrupted by our own rebellion, by our own anarchy, our decision to turn away from the will of the Lord and to do our own thing. The first moment that that happened, God spoke forth a promise of salvation. That a time would come when a seed would be born to this woman who would arise and yes, his heel would be bruised by this serpent, the devil. He would suffer at the hands of the devil. But in the end, he would bruise the head of the serpent. He would conquer. He would have the victory. And implied in that is a reversal of the ruin that the, that the serpent had brought upon the human race. That was God's first promise of salvation, Genesis 3.15. And here in Matthew, Matthew picks up on that promise and, and, and unf, uh, I guess, unpacks how that promise unfolded throughout Israel's history. That's the point in saying that Jesus, the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why was it important for him to be a son of David? Why was it important for him to be the son of Abraham? 
Well, because God gave specific promises to David and to Abraham that it would be one of their seeds that would arise to be that promised seed, that promised Savior of 315. So he would not only be the seed of the woman, he would be the seed of Abraham. We see that in Genesis 12.3. God promised that in Abraham all the nations of the world would be blessed. So from the very beginning of founding the nation that we know of as Israel, it was accompanied by this promise that in this people group through Abraham, one was going to come who would actually render blessing to the entire nation, all the nations of the world. Genesis 17, 7, it tells us that that promise of salvation and blessing that would come to the world would be carried through the line of Isaac, Abraham's seed. But ultimately, that promise was in reference to one specific seed. In Genesis 22, verse 17 and 18, when God promised that one seed would come from Abraham, and note, note this, he would possess the gates of his enemies. Your seed will possess the gate of his enemies, and in him or in you, all the nations of the world will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So here we have the promise that there would be a seed coming forth from Abraham who would be the, bring blessing to the entire world. And Matthew 1.1 also mentions that he was a seed of, uh, son of David. It narrows in that that focus of that Genesis 3.15 promise where we've gone from it being a seed of the human race born from a woman to being one who would come forth from Abraham and from the nation of Israel even further down to the family, the specific family of David. Born as a king in the line of the greatest king ever to rule over Israel, King David of Bethlehem. So 2 Samuel 7.12, God promised David, I will raise up your seed after you who will come forth from you. I will establish his kingdom and he will build a house for my name and I will establish his throne forever. That's going on into verse 13. Now initially, people thought that that would be Solomon because Solomon built a physical house for the Lord. It seemed as though he was a fulfillment of that promise anyway that a seed had come up from David who built a house for the Lord's name. However, Solomon's throne was not established forever because Solomon sinned against the Lord. And that proved that Solomon was not that promised seed that God was talking about in 2 Samuel 7, verse 12 and 13. Because Solomon did not, uh, was not established as God promised he would establish David's seed. About 400 years after David, 400 years after that word was spoken to David, uh, the, God promised in Jeremiah 23, 5-6 that the days were coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he will reign as king and he will act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. And in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. You see, that proves, doesn't it, that Solomon wasn't that promised seed. There was another seed that was coming. 400 years after David, God referred back to this promise and said, he's still coming. The days are coming when I will raise him up. The promise of the king who will reign righteously and bring salvation to his people, who himself will be the, their righteousness in the eyes of God. God says, I promise you, he's coming. And he's coming from the line of David, so watch for him. 
And so Matthew shows in verses 1 to 17 of, of Matthew chapter 1 that through various kinds of people, now pay attention to this, this is important. Matthew shows in, in verses 1 to 17 of Matthew chapter 1 that through various kinds of people and through various kinds of events and situations throughout history, God was always present and always faithfully working to bring this promise of His Christ to its fulfillment. So think about some of the things that we see in this genealogy. We've, we find murder in this genealogy. We find incest in this genealogy. We find injustice in this genealogy. We find prostitutes in this genealogy. We find Gentile women in this genealogy. We even find things like famine and death. And we do see glory and blessing, but that glory and blessing is eventually eclipsed by exile and deportation because of the disobedience of the people of God. Matthew's point or at least the major theme, the major thing that we need to take away from Matthew chapter 1 is that in the midst of all of that, God was still working to accomplish His purpose even when it was imperceptible and could not be discerned. God was working through that prostitute Rahab. God was working through the incest of Judah. God was working through Boaz taking to himself Ruth, this Moabite. God was working to bring to pass the coming of the Christ. He was working through the deportation to, to Babylon. He was working through the exile of His people and the separation of them from His presence in the promised land. God was always working to bring human history to the point when Jesus the Christ would be born in Bethlehem. God promised Christmas was going to come and nothing could get in the way of that promise. Now, that's a good reminder that Christmas brings to us every year, isn't it? Just as a way of point of application before I move on. No, that reminds us that no matter how good things may seem to be, God is always calling us to look to something greater that he's bringing about. Right? The kingdom of, of Israel was at its peak under the rule of David, and yet even under the rule of David, God was working to bring something greater to pass. People longed for the, the days of David. Oh, that we could just return to the kingdom as it was under David. But God doesn't want to return to the things as, it, as they were under David. He wants to bring us forward to a greater kingdom and a greater glory that He has established in Jesus Christ, His Son. That reminds us that no matter how good things might be in our lives, there is something greater that God has promised to bring to His people that we need to be looking for so that we don't get distracted by the things of this world and get buried by uh, what the world has to offer. Right? But also for others in this room, maybe this last year has not been a banner year. Maybe it's been a year marked by suffering and pain and trial. A year in which you're finding yourself asking the question, Lord, what are you doing? What are you doing in our nation? What are you doing in this state? What are you doing with my brother, my sister? What are you doing in my family? Maybe you've had financial issues. Maybe you still have sin struggles that you just can't kick. Maybe there's family strife or deteriorating health or loss of friends and loss of loved ones. 
Christmas Day comes as an annual reminder that even in the midst of, of that darkness, even when, it's, even when your life is at its darkest, God is still working in the midst of that pain to bring about something glorious. That's what we see in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. That no matter the suffering and the pain and the sorrow and the confusion, no matter your experience of failure or loss, God is still working in the midst of that. And in the end, you will clearly discern and recognize that there was nothing that the Lord did in your life that was done in vain. That's Exodus 14, by the way. 21, I believe. Christmas reminds us, no matter how bad things might get, God is still working. And He's working in the lives of all of His faithful people to accomplish everything that He has promised to accomplish for them. Now, moving on, Christmas reminds us not to think, well, that reminds us that... (laughs) Here we go. Return to my notes. Christmas reminds us not to look to the things that are temporal, but to the things which are eternal. So that's the point there. May we set our minds upon things that are eternal this Christmas season. Now, a second reminder that Matthew gives us is really a twofold reminder. He reminds us in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, of the hope of Christmas. The hope of Christmas. In 18, uh, verses 18 to 25 of chapter 1, Matthew highlights the hope that God had been promising to bring us to bring to the world in the promise of the Messiah. You know, at Christmas time, people hope for a lot of different things. I hope I get that gift, right? What I put on my Amazon list. I, actually, Jamie made my Amazon list this year, so uh, I guess she's hoping I get what she put on that list from someone else. But we, we hope for a lot of things. We hope for a good family gathering. We hope just for one family gathering where everyone gets along right? We hope for all kinds of things. We hope for change to come to pass. We hope that the year ahead will be better than the year behind. We hope even just to have another year of life. Now, those things are not necessarily bad things to hope for, but Christmas is intended by God to focus our hearts upon very specific hopes very particular and peculiar hopes that Christ has come to bring to us. There are certain gifts that God has given in the giving of His Son. And really, those are just two blessings that Christmas is really all about. And Matthew focuses our attention on that, on those two primary blessings that God gave us on that first Christmas day in uh, verses 18 to 25. So the first one that we see is a reminder of the hope of salvation from sin. What is Christmas all about? If someone were to ask you that, how would you answer? Right? You could answer in innumerable, near innumerable ways. What is Christmas all about? But Matthew would respond by saying, it's about salvation from sin. Matthew 1.21, after explaining that uh, to Joseph that Mary was with a child, not because she had been unfaithful to him, but because the Holy Spirit had begun uh, a new creation in her womb by begetting within her a child. The, the angel then gives Joseph very specific instructions. 
He says, Mary is going to bear the son. That's her work. <laughs> Love God's design of women. And I very much respect for moms who bear children. Mary's going to bear this child. Joseph, here's your job. You're going to make sure that he has the right name. That's not, <laughs> that doesn't seem so difficult in relation to the other. But Joseph's job was simply to make sure that his name was Jesus. Because it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now, most of you probably know that the name Jesus in Hebrew is Yeshua. Yeshua, it's a combination of two words, Yah, which is a shortened form of Yahweh, and Shua, which would be from a Hebrew word that means salvation or to be delivered or rescued. And so the name Yeshua means Yahweh saves, the Lord saves. And Jesus or Yesu or Jesus, that's just the Greek and the English version of Yeshua. So in, in naming this child Jesus, the name itself is a declaration of the greatest blessing and hope that the Lord promised to give His people in the Messiah. So the greatest promise that God ever gave to His people is, is being communicated them in the utterance of the name Jesus, Yeshua, Yahweh saves, and He's here. Jesus, the Christ. That God promised this over and over again to His people in the Old Testament. You see, for example, Isaiah 43, verse 25, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. I promise, God says, I promise I will forgive your sins for the glory of my name. And that promise would be secured in the people, for his people in the new covenant. As Jeremiah 31, 33 to 34 tells us in the new covenant, verse 34, the Lord God says, I will forgive their iniquity and their sins I will remember no more. All throughout the Old Testament, one of the greatest benefits that God gave and promised to give His people was the gift of the forgiveness of their sins. This is fundamental to having a right understanding of who God truly is. It's, it's fundamental to understanding His nature and His character that He is a God who is merciful and gracious. He is a God who is slow to anger and He is a God who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is a God who keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and sin and transgression. That's the glory of His name. When Moses said, Lord, show me Your glory, the Lord said, fine, I'll show you my glory. Here is my glory. It's who I am and it's what I do for sinners like you, Moses. I forgive you. I act with compassion towards you. And at the same time, I am the one who will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. That is the glory of Yahweh. You have to understand that He is the God of forgiveness if you're going to understand the glory of this God. Now, in a real sense, these verses present to us a mystery that could not be understood until the coming of the Messiah. How could God display the glory, His glory, the glory of His goodness, by forgiving by forgiving the sins of guilty sinners, and yet at the same time promise that he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. 
Well, wait a second. You're either forgiving them or you are punishing them. How can it be both? You're either releasing them. That's what forgiveness means. It means to be released from culpability or accountability. You're either releasing them from their sin and their guilt, or you are keeping them bound in that guilt and promising not to leave them unpunished. How can it be both? Well, these are promises that could not be fully understood until Yeshua HaMashiach came, Jesus the Messiah. Until Jesus the Christ came that Christmas day, we could not fully perceive how both of these could be true or truly appreciate what a precious gift Jesus Christ truly is. He came to be a Savior and to save His people from their sins. Now, some of you are thinking, yeah, we know that. I know that. That's a Christmas. That, that's the gospel story. I get that. But I wonder if you really recognize what that truth says about you. Your greatest problem, and I'm not talking to you generally. I'm talking to each one of you specifically. Let's just make that clear. You, your greatest problem in the presence of God is that you are a sinner. We're so used to saying that word sin or sinner that we no longer truly understand what it means to be a sinner. To sin means to deviate from the will and intention of God for us. To sin means that you have deviated from the will and intention that God has set for you. It's to disregard His will. It's to rebel against His desires. And it's to choose your own way over His. That's the essence of sin. You are choosing to go your own path rather than the path that the Lord has commanded you to go. And to be a sinner means that this unholy disregard for God characterizes your entire life. That you have set aside the will and the desire of God. You are living in utter disregard for what God deems to be good and best for you. You are renouncing or you are denouncing God's authority and right over you as your creator, as your provider, as the one who determines what is good. You are revolting against all of that and saying, I will determine all of this for myself. No thank you. Sure, you may seem like a good person on the outside. You may try to do good things to others. You may be a moral and upstanding citizen. But on the inside, your heart is consumed by a hatred for God and a revulsion against His ways. Yes, that includes things like drunkenness. It includes things like drug abuse and murder and theft and hating uh, your fellow man. It includes living in sexual immorality and sexual perversion such as homosexuality, transgenderism, adultery, sexual, uh, sexual activity prior to marriage. All of that's in the same category of sexual sin. Yes, it includes things like that. It includes things like gluttony, guys. It includes disobedience to parents, kids. It includes lying, it includes cheating, and it includes stealing. Yes, 
sin and living a life of sin, yes, it's marked by all those kinds of things. And internally, we recognize that all of these things are bad things. You would not entrust your newborn child into the hands of someone who is a drunkard. Right? Not if you're a good parent. You, you would not. I, I would never, I would never, ever, ever let some sexual pervert come over to my house and watch my children. Because I recognize it's wrong. And so do you. We know inherently that these kinds of things are wrong, but what we need to recognize is that those sins are just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to your sinfulness in the presence of God. Right? It's, 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 it's enough to bring the whole ship of your life down. Where's Benji? Benji? Oh, man. Did you show him pictures of the Titanic? Okay, I was talking with Benji the other day about pictures of the Titanic and how it was, it was this unsinkable ship that, that even God himself couldn't sink. And the Lord uses this little iceberg out in the middle of the ocean to bring that ship down two miles below the surface of the sea. Right? Just smacking the hubris and arrogance of man all around. Your, your sin, those manifest sins in your life, that's just the tip of the iceberg of your problem in the presence of God. It's enough to bring the ship of your life down, but it's just the surface level manifestation of what's really going on in your heart. And that's the problem. All of those sins, all those surface sins, they stem from a deeper sin that is at work in your heart, which is your lack of love for God, your creator. That's the greatest sin. So really at the heart of every sin is simply this. It's a denial of God's right to be God over you. It's an attempt to knock God off of his rightful throne and a desire to put yourself in his place. Every time you sin, that is what what is being manifested. And every sinner who lives serving his or her sinful desires over and against the will of God is saying exactly that. You are saying back to God, my life is not about you. My life is about me, and I'm going to use my life for what I want to do. Now that's a problem. That's a problem, but it's not your greatest problem. Your greatest problem, your problem is that you are a sinner. Your greatest problem is that the day is coming when each one of us will stand before God, our creator, our lawgiver, and our judge, and we will give an account for every sin that we've committed. That's your greatest problem. Now, you might have an opinion of me that's hellfire brimstone preacher or some buffoon up here just rattling on about things I don't care about. That's fine. But what you need to understand is that this is a reality that each one in this room is going to have to face. You are a sinner. And what makes that the great what what makes that your greatest problem is not just that you've committed bad things against other people. It's that you're going to stand in the presence of God and give an account for it. You're going to stand at the bar of his judgment throne and you're going to be called upon to explain why. You believed that your will and your desires and your ambitions and your sinful behaviors were more important than his, his desires, his will. 
And before his throne, when you finally see the Lord and the splendor of his majesty and you feel the weight of his glory bearing down upon you, there will not be an argument from you to offer back to him that would justify you. There will be no vindicating of yourself in his presence. When the weight of his glory falls upon you, there will be in your heart an immediate and automatic self-renunciation. You will declare yourself to be in the wrong and you will acknowledge that God is in the right because you will finally see him as he truly is and you'll finally see yourself for what you really are. That's your greatest problem. And salvation from that is your greatest need. And the glory of Christmas is that the greatness of your need has been met by the greatness of the Father's gift. See, Jesus came into the world to be the Savior of His people. Not all people. He didn't come to save everybody universally, absolutely. He came to save His people. That is, those who will embrace Him. Those who will have faith in Him. Those who will cling to Him. Those who will come to Him. Those who will renounce their sin and submit to Him. He came to save His people from their sins. And note that, not primarily saving them from suffering and pain and discomfort in this life, but to save them from their sin and the judgment that sin deserves in the age and in the life to come. That's what Christmas is all about. It's the sending forth of the Christ. It's the embodiment of Yahweh's salvation for His people that Yeshua has come bringing salvation to His people, which is exactly what God promised. The servant would come and Yahweh would lay upon the head of His servant. Isaiah 53.6 He would lay upon the head of His servant all the iniquities of His people and by the chastising of that servant and the piercing of that servant and the crushing of that servant He would bring salvation to those who would hope in Him. Isaiah 53.10 It would please the Lord to crush Him and to put Him to grief so that He could bring salvation to His people. That's the ultimate gift of Christmas. That's what I celebrate on Christmas Day. That's what I've got to set my heart and my attention upon in the midst of this world, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Jesus came as a Savior to save His people from their sins. And that is what I need to rejoice in, no matter what I'm experiencing and going through. That's the gift of the first Christmas, and that gift leads to the second gift, which is reconciliation with God. And I'm just going to run through this very briefly here. That second blessing that Matthew highlights in Matthew 1.23 is that blessing of reconciliation of sinners with God. You see this in Matthew 1.23. The virgin bears a son, and his name is not Jesus in this verse, but what is his name? It's Emmanuel. It's God with us. Right? That's the promise of Isaiah 7.14. And it's, it's reflecting, it's, it's, it's representing the reversal of what took place in Eden. What, what the result of our sin really is. 
what creates this separation between our God and us, why we don't have greater fellowship and, and a sense of His nearness, is it all has to do with our sin. We are born into a world where God seems absent, though we can't deny His reality as we look around at the world and we see the order in creation and we understand our own makeup and biological complexity. We can't deny that there is a Creator because everything around us is irreducibly complex. And yet, at the same time as we are not able to deny our Creator, we're not able to identify exactly who He is because He seems so absent. What caused that? Sin is what caused that. Separation from our God and us. Sin is that barrier that separates us from Him. But what is reflecting, what's represented in the coming of the Son of God into this world, born of a virgin, born to us to be the Savior of the world, what's represented in that is God stepping down to reconcile Himself to mankind. To heal the breach. To, to, to close up the gap that our sin had created. God took the initiative and sent forth His Son to make the bridge. And all of that is shown to us in that Christmas day when Jesus Christ was born of Mary. Now you've been very patient with me as I've rambled on. But I want to end this morning by considering four various responses to this good news of Christmas. In Matthew chapter 2, Matthew presents to us four different responses to the good news of Christ's arrival. And I just want to walk through them briefly and then ask you a question, okay? Amen? You say, better be brief. The first one is Herod. In Matthew chapter 2, Matthew highlights the response of Herod to the good news of the birth of this Savior. How did Herod respond to it? Well, when Herod the king heard about the birth of the Messiah, he was troubled. When he heard the Magi coming saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? He was troubled in his heart. And the reason for that is because Herod was threatened by that news. Herod was a ruthless, power-hungry, bloodthirsty tyrant. At this point, he's probably 70 years old. And he's still afraid that someone is going to come and steal his authority. Herod was, uh, of, he was an Edomite, so he was not Jewish. And he was appointed to be the king of the Jews by Rome. So the Jewish people did not like Herod at all. And they would have embraced a revolt against his rule. So here, these magi come from the east declaring that a king had been born, a king of the Jews, and Herod gets threatened. You know, this, this is a man who had the high priest killed, who had his own wife killed, and who had his third son murdered five days before he died because he saw them as a threat to his authority. How would a man like that respond to the good news of the rightful king coming to take his rightful place in the world? Well, we see how he responded to that, didn't we? Or don't we? He, uh, he sent out and slew all the male children two years and under in Bethlehem in hopes of wiping out this one who had been born king of the Jews. He did that a year before he died, by the way. Shows how power hungry he was. So that's one response. Fear, rage. Being troubled. What about, secondly, the people of Jerusalem? 
Verse 3, it also says that the people of Jerusalem were terrified of the news that the king of the Jews had been born in Bethlehem. Why were they afraid? Well, it doesn't take much imagination to understand why the people under Herod's rule were afraid. Uh, They knew that the arrival of this king and even the utterance that this king had been born would lead to disastrous consequences for the people because the bloody tyrant Herod would only bring about more bloodshed and suffering to get rid of this supposed king. There's a third response by the religious leaders in verses 4 and 6 who were aware that the Magi had came. They were aware that they were proclaiming, where is he who is born king of the Jews? And they were informed as to where that king would be born. So Herod goes to them and says, where is, where is he going to be born? And they respond rightly, quoting Micah chapter 5, verse 2, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Now the, Magi, or the, uh, the religious leaders, however, were showing an attitude of indifference towards the Messiah. They didn't even go with the Magi to check out the situation and see, is this indeed the one whom we've been waiting for? They had a lot of knowledge, but they were indifferent. And then the fourth response is from the Magi themselves. What did they do? They saw his star in the east, and they left everything behind in order to seek him out. They came into the city, didn't have a clear understanding of where he was, and what were they doing? They were asking everyone, where is the king of the Jews? When that star returned, what did they do? They were filled with great joy. And they they followed that star all the way until they found the Messiah. And when they found him, they worshipped him. Four different responses to the good news of the king who was born in Bethlehem that day. My final question is, which one are you? Are you like Herod, who feels threatened at the good news of the Messiah because You know that if you submit to this king, you can no longer be king over your own life. You know that if you follow Jesus as the one who saves his people from their sins, you have to let go of your sin. Does that trouble you? Does it feel threatening to you? Does that keep you from coming and embracing Christ, the Savior? Or are you like the Jews in Jerusalem who are scared of the consequences of embracing the news of this king? Scared that it's going to lead to suffering and shame and, and, and um, persecution, maligning, people thinking less of you. Jesus says if you won't embrace the life of the cross in order to follow him, you can't be his disciple. Is that you? Are you like the Jews in Jerusalem? Or are you like the scribes and the Pharisees? You know all about this kind of stuff and you can speak of it with great accuracy and biblical knowledge, but you know that in your heart, really, you're cold and indifferent to the good news of the Messiah who came to save his people from their sins. Or are you like the fourth group, the Magi? Are you seeking and pursuing Christ the King with a sincere heart? And when you find him, are you worshiping him and presenting to him gifts that are appropriate for his kingship? There's only one gift that's appropriate for you to give to Jesus, and that's your whole life. Are you giving yourself to him? Like the Magi, Magi, giving their gifts to him? This Christmas and, this, and tomorrow on Christmas Day, may we all be like the Magi and not like Herod and not like the Jews, and not like the scribes and the Pharisees, but may we be true worshipers of the King of glory who has come to save us.
from our sins. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the hope of Christmas. In the midst of a world of pain, the good news of Jesus Christ is a subject for praise in every place. It's a song on earth. It's an anthem in heaven. Its grace and its glory will know no end. Would you help us know the glory of the Christmas story this Christmas season? Or bless us by your grace and mercy for the sake of Christ. Amen. 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 Would you hear a benediction from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8? It's an odd benediction, but hear it. Feels fitting for today. Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now, I pray that you will go forth for the rest of this Christmas season loving his appearing and loving it more until the day of his glory. Amen. May you go in the peace of Christ.